Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Marketing with a Book podcast. Thanks for joining us today. It's not marketing a book, it's marketing with a book. It's how independent consultants attract high paying clients by marketing with a book and a speech. We really believe that the book is the number one marketing tool and speaking about the book is your number one marketing strategy. So we have a special guest today, one of our Indie Books International authors, Bruce Werner. But before we bring Bruce on, we'd like to have a little hello from some of our authors here. And we'll start with Mark LeBlanc and then go to Dave Sparkman. Mark? Thank you, Henry. My name is Mark LeBlanc. I'm in Minneapolis. And my next book, I'm co-authoring with Henry and David Goldman, titled Bringing in the Business. Thanks, Mark. And Dave, tell, uh, tell us about yourself and the book you're working on. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Dave Sparkman. I'm in Vista, California. I'm working on a book called uh, Spark Your Culture, How to Fuel and Ignite to Success. Dave, I'm going to put you on the spot. You were at a very famous culture. Do you want to share some of that? Oh, sure. I was actually at two fairly well-known cultures, uh, Arthur Anderson uh, earlier in my career, and then most recently at United Health Group. Nice. So we did a lot of work on culture at both of those organizations, and I'm hopeful to share some lessons learned in the book that's coming out. That's what I really like about your book, Dave, is it's not war stories or here's what happened. It's lessons learned. We can take lessons away from this and your story matters, all of our stories matter. Your story matters in that book because it'll help people remember and take it in. So thank you so much. Um, so I'm the author of Rainmaker Confidential along with Mark LeBlanc and Scott Love. This is a book we spent a year on researching. We interviewed more than a hundred rainmakers at professional service firms and consulting firms it was during the pandemic, a scary time. So it was, what's your go-to strategy? What are you doing less of? What are you spending more money on? And we compiled that into a book of insider secrets. So that's why we called it Confidential. But it's not espionage, they gladly share. Okay. Well, now let's bring on our special guest, Bruce Werner. Bruce is a Forbes.com columnist. He also runs a business that he'll tell us about, uh, Kona Advisors, and came from a very well-known family business. And so he knows the, uh, the dirty little secrets of working in a family business, uh, where, where a board meeting uh, can break out in a bedroom, or a, uh, a stock option plan can be discussed over breakfast, lots of things. So Bruce, welcome. Thank you, Henry. Thanks for having me. So great to have you here. Um, why don't you give us a little window into your world, who you are, and what the book's about? Sure. So for the last 20 years, I provide consulting services to private business owners. Uh, about a third of my business specializes on family business issues. Most of my clients are 10 to 100 million revenue. Certainly have those above and below. And I focus on the issues that keep owners awake at night. As businesses grow, people know how to run their business, they know how to make money. Um, 
they may have operational consultants, but when they have a new situation they haven't seen before, it doesn't really matter how successful they are. They're a little bit of a deer in headlights, and that's where um, that's where I come in. Um, I'm an engineer by training, so I look at business issues as an engineer of let's define the problem, where are we now, where are we going to, and then map a plan in between. So as I lay out in the book, where you are today is point A. We can understand that pretty well. Where you wanna wind up is point B. A lot of folks can't actually say what point B is where the first step is, what is that? How do we define success so that when you get there, you know you have? Once I know A and B, I can build a road between them and then guide you along that path. And so the book, Your Ownership Journey, actually lays out the life cycle of owning a private company uh, with an extra chapter in family business, starting with you know, what, are, what, are, what are your goals as a, as a human? Um, because it's really about life more than just making money. Once we know what that is, let's get a business strategy that allows you to achieve that, those goals. Once we have a business strategy, we need capital and talent, and we need to go execute. And there's a whole bunch of work there. There's probably some M&A along the way for some folks to consider. You need to develop a management team. You most certainly will have to deal with conflict along the way, so it's nice to have some tools for that. As you have success, you need to develop new management. You probably need a management succession plan. And eventually it's time to think about, you know, exiting and retiring. Um, and then, you know, at, at the end of it, you know, as I like to say, it's really about how do you make sure you have no regrets when it's all over? There's too many people who spend a lifetime working on their business. They sell their business, they have a huge pile of money and they're unhappy for the rest of their life. And that is just something I think, um, shouldn't happen. And so through the process, we work for it, work towards getting you to your point B, how you define success and having no regrets once, you, once you've made the big decisions. Bruce, I wanted to follow up on a point about your who, who you wrote the book for. And I hope this isn't coming out of left field, but you mentioned 10 million to 100 million. I've heard some of our authors say there's a big difference between a business that's at 5 million and one that's crossed that barrier and is at 15 and growing. Do you find that also and, and how so? It, it's absolutely true. There is a tremendous body of uh, work that shows businesses have life cycles just like humans. You're a, you're a newborn, you're a toddler, you're a kid, you're a teenager, you're a young adult through old age. Growing a business is very analogous to that. Um, and you know, classically, the stages of a business are startup, growth, maturity, and decline. Uh, and you know, for years, I've observed with my clients is, you know, zero to five is let's just try to survive. They hit the first wall around 10 million because one person can't do it all. It's well known that the span of control for one manager is about eight people max. It's more with technology, but there's certainly limitations to that. Um, the next step happens maybe around, definitely at 25 to 30 million. Um, that's when people start saying, do I need a board of directors? Because the issues and problems they have, they can't solve within their team. They need outside experience. And so that's when people start asking that question. 
you know, from 30 to 60, there's kind of a sprint where you add some more talent and it's fine. But as you get bigger, business gets more complicated. The nature of decisions gets more complicated. And it really becomes about risk because you're either going to take on more capital or you're going to buy a business or you're going to bring in a key management person. And those decisions bet the whole company. Um, and so the decisions you need to make, the risk involved, comfort with that. Like I'm making a great living at $10 million. I have my weekends off. I can go fishing. Do I really want to double down and work 80 hours a week for the next 10 years? Um, all that comes back to the first chapter of the book of what are your ownership goals? Um, you don't have to grow your business. That's a choice. Um, you can own your business, but not run it. Those are choices. And there's plenty of tools to kind of work through the analysis of what's right for you. And once you know that, how do we go make that happen? Bruce, you were talking about from point A to point B and B being what I want as the owner. And in my experience, that's a very hard question for them to answer. Uh, what's your experience with that? And how do you help them get to an answer for where point B is? Uh, I completely agree. And that's why in my comments, I said, do you know where point B is or not? In fact, the vast majority actually don't. And it's too hard to think about. So they just go back to work. Um, the common phrase is there's a difference between working in the business and working on the business. You spend 95% of your time working in the business and maybe only 5% on the business, but that 5% is the most important and sets the stage for everything else. Um, so one of the first things I assess when I meet someone is, do you know what you really want? And if not, Let's go focus on figuring that out. And there's a, a process for going through that. Uh, it's a little bit of guesswork, a little process of elimination, a, a little bit, a lot of it of making people just uncomfortable enough to force them to think through tough issues. And it's iterative and it's unique to every circumstance. Bruce, I have a dirty little secret about your book. It's not just for people in the 10 to 100 million range. Uh, anybody who owns a business can get something out of it. And I wanted to bring up a question with that in mind, because you talk about a strategic plan and a business plan, but I think the main message of your book is you need an ownership plan. Could you Absolutely. explain that? It's, you need to figure out your ownership strategy which is really, what do I wanna be when I grow up? And that doesn't matter how big your company is. And once you know that, the rest can fall in place. Um, and it's really about the, uh, the self-searching of what would really make me happy? What do I wanna do? What are the trade-offs? That's really the hard part. And that's where the vast majority of people struggle. Okay. So, Talk about the two needs of the business that you talk about in the book, um, money and talent. Capital and talent is what it's all about. With privately owned companies, all private companies have a disadvantage of public companies. And with family businesses, it's worse. It's hard to get the capital you need to grow the business on good terms. 
And it's harder to attract the best talent because good talent has lots of options. And while they do like private companies, certainly they're a little more hesitant about family-owned businesses because of uh, family issues. And so when you think about, once you know your ownership strategy and we start working on the business strategy, it's fairly straightforward analysis to say, how much capital do you need? When do you need it? And what form and structure do you need that capital to achieve your business plan? So everyone says, well, I'll go to a bank, get a loan. And that may be okay until the bank says, we won't give you any more and you want more. Or the bank wants a personal guarantee and you don't want to bet your house that everything will go right. Um, there's lots of other options. There's also a concept called the cost of capital, which is you're really renting money um, to grow your business. You are going to have to give it back someday. Um, you may be able to choose that. Most likely, you're not able to choose when you have to give it back. So if you're renting the money, you know what's the lowest cost you can rent it at for the amount of time you want it? Uh, and so that's on the capital side. That's called designing your capital stack. On the talent side, um, actually much harder than getting the money. Um, money is a commodity and money follows the talent. Most people struggle to say, if only I had the money, but it doesn't actually work that way. If you have the talent, the ideas, and a little bit of charisma, the money will show up. Um, on the talent side, it's really about designing your organization to execute your business plan. In 1962, Alfred Chandler said, structure follows strategy, meaning once I know my business strategy, what I wanna do, then I can design my organization to go do that. So do I want functional silos? Do I want independent business units? You know, How do I have the most efficient structure? That's all part of it. So you design your structure for where you wanna be. So case I have now, a $30 million business today. We want to be $60 million in three years. The market's there. We know we can do it. But what does the organization have to look like at $60 million? Like, like how many salespeople do you need? What talent do they need? What markets are they in? How big an accounting department do we need? How much technology do you need? I always say start with the answer and work backwards. So if we know what the $60 million organization looks like in a perfect world, we, we put the boxes on the chart and put in the titles. And then we start saying, well, who are the candidates? Where do we get them? How long it takes to recruit them? And I don't need all of them at once, but I need to kind of know when I need them so I can start my one-year recruiting process or whatever. So structure follows strategy. Now, in your book, you talk about boards of advisors. A family privately owned business doesn't necessarily need a um, fiduciary board of directors like a uh, public company would, you advocate board of advisors. Could you speak about that? Sure. So every company legally has to have a board of directors, a fiduciary board. But if you're privately owned, there is no requirement by a government authority that you have outsiders on it, which is why very few do until there's a demonstrated need. The purpose of a board of advisors is to provide the value add of having the outsiders with none of the downside of a fiduciary board. So if you own the company, 
you don't need outsiders to tell you how much to pay yourself. And you probably don't want to pay outsiders to tell you if you're doing a good job or not. But you probably really want some advice on how to grow your business, how to manage risk, how to get new relationships with customers, um, or how to plan for the future. And that's where a board of advisors is a really good tool. There's different flavors. It's anything but one size fits all. And in fact, the rule of thumb is each situation is unique and you should design like a bespoke suit on Savile Row. You should design it exactly for you and no one else. So there's a process for figuring it out where we actually do a needs analysis because a really good board is working on problems that are three to five years ahead of today. So we always start with, what are the three or four things that keep you awake at night and that outside help can help you with? And we put them on a time frame. And there we look at, well, if that's the problem you're trying to solve, what are the skills and experiences that you would want someone to speak to about that? Now, you don't need three marketing people. Um, you might need one marketing person, one industry expert. Maybe you need a finance guy if you're going to do a lot of M&A. But we kind of go through and we quite literally design a matrix to say, these would be the perfect set of skills and experiences to weigh in on these issues. And then we go find them. Um, and you know, younger companies, smaller companies, start with what I call consulting boards. You're really renting talent for a day or two a year, but it's pretty light. There's only one or two subjects. And it's a great place to start. It normally starts with companies around 20 to 30 million, they start asking. As the company grows and the issues get more complex, it steps up to a junior advisory board where they're looking at strategy and talent, but they're not getting into risk management, compensation, or management succession. A full advisory board, they're adding pretty much all of that to protect ownership, but not dealing with uh, executive comp or uh, ownership issues. Um, and that goes, you know, an advisory board can go work quite well for companies in hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, it's just a matter of the situation. Now, uh, in the book, you also talk about Vistage International, uh, Young Presidents Organization, Entrepreneurs Organization, EO. And I know you don't really have a dog in that fight, as my dad used to say, or a horse in that race. Um, can businesses that are growing use these as board of, you know, a de facto board of advisors uh, as they're growing? Yeah, so thanks for asking. That's not why these organizations exist. Um, certainly EOS um, and to a lesser extent Vistage you know, e e I should back up, EOS is a management system. It yeah. teaches you a very specific way to run your business. And I've seen it do really wonderful things. I have a client now who's 80 million in revenue and they're 100% drank the Kool-Aid and it completely works for them. Uh, EOS is typically for smaller companies where entrepreneurs actually have to systematize how they run their business. Yeah. You know, Vistage is not a management system, but it's a peer group where you have 10 or 12 fellow CEOs that you can commiserate with and share your secrets without, without judgment. Um, and YPO is a, I'll say a more sophisticated version of that. Um, a lot of people use them as a surrogate for a board, but they're not the same thing. And uh, the smart ownership group will 
typically be in YPO or EOS or some in Tiger 21, another group, because it gives them that peer-to-peer -peer work, but they also have a board of advisors, which is just them and a very unique set of skills. I think Vern Harnish and what is his gazelles? I think that's a similar yep. concept. Uh, gazelle is a gazelle is a new branding for a prior name, which is a direct competitor to EOS. I have a have a client who is a gazelle. Yeah, and as an editor, when anybody mentions EOS, there's a lot of rules on what we got to follow when we mention them and giving credit and all that. They they've really built an an interesting fence around their intellectual property. So I, I uh, tip of the cap to them for that. And I'm now, happy to defer that job to you. Okay. Well, that's, um, when, whenever you mention something like Microsoft or uh, disk profiles or uh, EOS, I have a lot of experience on what we can and can't do on that. Okay. So let's talk about getting the business ready for sale, because a lot of the advice seemed to be good to, not only just to get your house in order, but to get the house uh, cleaned and polished for visitors. Could you talk about that? Sure. So when owners are thinking that it might be time to sell their business, typically to retire, um, th there's a process for that. And, and I'll, I'll segue because Sometimes you should be selling your business because you need capital to grow the business. And it's the only way to bring enough capital into it. And maybe you own majority or minority, but there's a reason for the transaction other than going to the beach. Um, most private companies you know, are run for the benefit of the owner and therefore they do things uh, particular to the owner that no one else cares about. Um, or depending on the owner's skill and interest, they may not do things they probably ought to be doing. And so the question is always, how will a buyer look at your business? Are you running it the way a buyer is likely to run it? Well, probably not. Um, if you still have your grade school kids on the payroll and your cousin's cell phone on expense and that second, third vacation home running through the PL, you know, we we need to go make some adjustments there. Um, you probably need to assess your management team because when you sell your company, you need to either deliver a complete management team or take the haircut in value because they're gonna have to go hire people for you. you know, one of the rules of thumbs is if there's an issue, you can either clean it up yourself and get paid for it or let them do it and not get paid for it. And that's the simplest way to explain you know, what you need to do to get ready to go to market. Um, depending that sounds upon a lot your... like selling a house, Bruce. Uh, you know, you can discount the house or you can fix it and make money on the deal. You're selling an asset. Yeah. Yep, you're selling an asset. You, when are you ready to put the asset on the market and how do you get it to present as well as possible? Um, fixing a business is a little more complicated than fixing the house, but it's the same principle. Bruce, I was part of a consulting team helping a business be sold. They were eventually bought by a, a billion dollar corporation. But one of the suitors that came in said, you have done an excellent job of polishing the turd. 
this business is a turd, but you have polished it up beautifully. <laughs> it's good to work with people who are straightforward and sincere, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the after part of the journey, or maybe we could call it the end part of the journey. I found it very interesting in your book, the psychology of leaving this business because as uh, my partner, Mark LeBlanc's mentor always said, this is gonna end. Something's gonna end here. Somebody, you know, it's gonna end or you're gonna end. So there's gonna be change. But um, if you're leaving the business and then what do you do with the rest of your life? Could you talk about that and, and maybe even bring in your own uh, family? Sure, sure. So, um, you know, everyone either dies or retires. You only get to pick one of those choices, the other one's made for you. Uh, at the beginning of the hour, I said, what do you have to do to have no regrets when you leave the business? Um, I have a lot of experience that says there's too many people who spend their lifetime building a business, they sell it uh, when they want to retire, they walk away with a huge pile of money and they're hugely unhappy for the rest of their days. And to me, that's just, it's just a sin. Um, I know of a number of people who are very high profile, successful New York attorneys and CEOs, and they go to retire in Florida and they're just another old guy on the golf course and they die six months later because they no longer have purpose. And the real issue is when you sell your business and you've been working 60 hours a week forever, what's your reason to get out of bed in the morning? What do you have to look forward to? Um, it's a very tough time of life to pick up new hobbies and make lots of new friends. It doesn't happen quickly. Um, my observation is harder for men than for women because um, most men have been so used to the work environment of a, men of a certain generation, I'll say that. Um, and it just makes no sense to me. You worked hard so that one day you can have this uh, great retirement and then you're unhappy. And a year after the deal, no one remembers how much money they sold it for. And the extra million here, a million there is irrelevant. They do remember what happened to all my friends are they okay if they're still working there? Did they fire all the people who made me successful? You know, what am I proud of? What's my legacy? And so when we talk about the ownership strategy at the beginning, it ties to, to the end of, well, what do you really want? How are you going to live once you walk away? And if you don't have a plan for that, we need to start, you need to start working on that the better part of three to five years before you check out because it really takes that long to, you're creating a whole new life from scratch. Probably in another city where if you're like me in Chicago, it's gonna be you know Florida or Arizona or someplace warm like where Henry lives. Um, and it takes a long time to do Arizona, that. Arizona, Bruce, Arizona, not, not Florida. Um, we agree on that one. Um, and so I've seen this happen too many times. And uh, you know the story you referenced was my dad. So my dad had one job for 45 years. He uh, worked for the Warner Company. And uh, when it was time to leave, he had done all the work up front. He literally put the keys on the table, walked out the door and never looked back. And he's been busier since than then. At age 90, he wrote his first book. Um, he plays golf two, three times a week, 
plays uh, bridge a couple times a week. Completely sold out and loving it. Um, as compared to the you know his friends who had no plan and died early. Um, and the secret of, one of his secrets to his longevity is you know he found a way to enjoy life when he didn't have to bring a paycheck home anymore. And uh, I think uh, you know as I say he won the game of life. You know all his all of his family loves him, loves to be around him. Mom and dad are high school sweethearts. Seventy years later. Um, he wakes up every day with a smile on, on his face. Pretty good deal. At, he'll be 91 in two weeks. Yeah, he's my hero. Um, Bruce, when my father was retiring, I went to visit him to have a chat. Um, and I said, you're going to need to have something else to do. You just can't be this active person and then have nothing to do. And he says, well, I was going to golf once a week. And I said, well, you know, that's nice. But you're going to need something to talk about at the dinner table or, you know, you won't believe what those knuckleheads did today. And um, so I went to sleep and at 6 a.m. somebody is kicking my bed. <laughs> and I wake up and my father in his BVDs is standing over me and said, what if I golfed three times a week? Like, nope, not good enough. You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to have some kind of part-time job or something. My um, my uh, daughter's father-in-law, uh, MBA, MD, retires, and and I'm giving the same speech to him, and he's talking about, oh, you know, uh, and he sold a big company. He doesn't need a dime. Um, so finally he called me and said, you'll be very happy to know I've accepted a job. I work mornings. I restore furniture for this charity and they sell it and they make money. And I said, excellent. You're going to live a long time with that. So uh, speaking of the selling and retiring, you have a story, what I call the fishing story. Uh, could you tell the fishing story? Jack, my friend, yeah. Jack. Yeah, sure. Um, probably one of the best client relationships I've had. So I got a call a few years ago from a guy named Jack. He had uh, five brother-in-laws and he was very entrepreneurial, but didn't have a dime. Uh, the brothers-in-law came from a successful family and they gave him the money to go buy a small business. Jack turned that small business into a very successful, larger business. Jack kind of did everything right. He scoped out his market, he developed a management team, he developed a really good competitive advantage, had great marketing, conservatively financed, a complete advocate of EOS. Um, it was just kind of a marvel. Um, and he was a, just a really nice guy. And the question Jack had is like, this has been great, I'm done, I wanna go fishing. Uh, I don't know what to do. Had never bought or sold a company, never had a loan from a bank, just had no experience. Um, and so what we did is kind of exemplifies the book. Jack had done all the chapters in the book until chapter 12. And it's really, well, I need help selling my business. I don't know what to do. So we, we laid out a plan to say, here's all the ways to sell a business. Here's the type of people who might buy it. Gave him a, a great education process. And eventually he said, I want X, okay. We spent nine months getting to X, got a price higher than what he expected. Everyone was really comfortable, found a buyer he got along with. Everything was great. Um, 
and the uh, the wires cleared three days before the state of Illinois shut down everything for COVID. Um, he got the money on a Monday and the state was shut down on Thursday, um, which is really telling because another deal I was working on, they were fiddling around. They were supposed to close in early April uh, and it took nine months and he did not get the same deal. Um, so it is better to be lucky than good. But Jack's really the classic case if he did everything right at the last stage, you know, the first question is, Jack, what are you going to do when you sell the business? And he had a very specific plan and he was locked in. And uh, I spoke with his wife, he goes, that is, that is what Jack wants. Um, so it, it worked out really get great. And they're just, you know, I'm very happy to see good people have success and have happiness after, you know, spending a lifetime of doing the right thing. Bruce, let me tell you about Ben. Ben is a friend of mine. Uh, while we were editing the book together and I'm getting all your pearls of wisdom, I had to channel my inner Bruce because Ben calls me one day and says, Henry, I, you know, I've got this good business. I've enjoyed it, but it's not going to be a good business as I get older. It's going to be too hard on, on the body. So I'm going to just drop it and switch to this other business. So another business owner and I had an intervention with Ben and said, Ben, this is an asset. Somebody will buy it. It's a going concern. Um, and he was even like, oh, well, maybe they can't afford all the equipment. He said, excellent. You can give them a loan to pay you for the equipment. You can lease the equipment to them. There's so many things you can do. So Ben didn't just walk away from something. So thank you for that. Well, That's a great example of people don't understand what all their options are because it's not part of their day-to-day. -day. And when I talk about what are the problems that keep people awake at night, you don't know what you don't know. Um, so, you, so, you know, you got to ask the right questions if you want to get the right answers. Yeah. Well, we've talked about Vistage and I've been a Vistage International member and I found it very beneficial because it's the wisdom of the team. You know, it's like, who Absolutely. wants to be a millionaire? The best thing to do is pull the audience because while I, I'm strong in marketing, other people are much stronger in finance and putting deals together and um, just telling me how uh, every, every loan and note and money deal is negotiable and you can always negotiate. And then for them, I was helping them with other things too. So that was nice. There's another group, uh, Inner Circle. It's out of uh, Minnesota. I've been a member of that and mm -hmm. it's facilitated. Same sort of deal where you're with other business owners. Um, you know, somebody had a problem where, well, it was really fraud. He bought a business, but there was fraud involved. Um, he had hired a private investigator and the two people who'd committed the fraud talked about it openly in a restaurant patio and were recorded. So they helped him find the right attorney to pursue this. And so there is a wisdom in teams. There's also the wisdom to go to someone like you. The question is, how do you evaluate your trusted advisors when you have a business? Great question. Um... You know, 
it still comes back to character first. Um, who are they as a human being, as a person? Because character is going to determine how they how they handle the unpleasant situations. Um, and you often don't have the opportunity to figure that out until you're in an unpleasant situation. It's the first time. Um, and you know, kind of in my business, as you, you know, a relationship that's a year or two old is not as productive as a relationship that's 10 years old. The more, you know, common shared experiences is what create, creates bonds and causes us to trust other people. Um, both with their strengths and weaknesses. So I may go to Jeff on some things and Charlie on other things, but I've been with both of them for 15 years and I know I know who to go ask in certain situations. So um, there is no easy right answer. Uh, you make your referrals, you test, you probe. You really have to be able to ask, look them in the eye and ask a tough question and not blink um, if they don't answer you. If they're not really to give a straightforward answer where your gut says they're telling the truth, um, that's a problem. You know, if in doubt, trust your gut. I always enjoyed Harvey McKay's book, uh, Swim with the Sharks. The main message on there was, and he had another book called Dig Your Well Before You're Thirsty. Uh, he, he ran an envelope company, or maybe still does, out of Minnesota. But he said you need to put together a, a comprehensive list, not just an attorney and an accountant, uh, but you need a comprehensive list of go-to people and that you should do things to benefit them and evaluate them. Uh, he also says you need somebody that uh, you could call in the middle of the night and say, uh, I need you to post bail. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's one of the worst case scenarios. So. I, I like what you say in the book about developing relationships and all that. L let me switch gears here. Uh, marketing with a book now. Um, before we met, you were a writer. I mean, you're an engineer, but you're a writer. You Tell us about some of the places you've written for and maybe how you became a writer for Forbes. Well, the backstory is when I started consulting 20 years ago, several people said, well, if you're a consultant, you have to write a book. Otherwise, you know, you, you won't do well. And it's like, you're probably right, but I don't have anything to say and it's too much work. I'll, I'll find another way. Um, 15 years later, I realized I have something to say. I have specific thoughts I wanna share uh, with an audience because it's important to me. And so I started writing columns about five years ago. Uh, I've, written, I've written full length articles for a number of national magazines and, um, you know, this is what led me to both Financial Poise, which is one column, targeting attorneys, and Forbes. Um, I wrote for magazines for some trade associations and found that the more I wrote, the more things came into focus for me. And so uh, I've been writing for Financial Poise maybe four years and writing on Forbes two plus years. Um, and the more I wrote, and actually, a, a friend who reads my column said, you know, you're becoming more focused since you started, because the question is, what do you want to write about and and why? Um, first, it was I had things to say as, um, you know, as you get older, supposedly you become a little bit wiser. Uh, I'll let others be the judge of that. 
Um, and it's also great for marketing. Um, I would send it, I would write my column, I would send it out and friends would say, oh, I sent it to a client who has that issue. And then, you know, the phone would ring. And so success begets success. I would write more. And, um, you know, had not forgotten 20 years ago when I was told, go write a book. And I had, as you know, the story is I spent about a year looking at options, spoke to lots of folks in the book business, figured out how all of them make money, but not me. Um, and then uh, met Brad Fisher one day by accident, who I met him on the day he went live with his book on um, scalability. And that's how we got introduced and found that, you know, your way of doing it met my needs. Um, and so to me, writing a book is a marketing project. I can go hire, I'd looked at PR firms and SEO and all, all the other avenues to drive business. And they didn't make sense for my business. I'm 100% warm referral. Um, why I don't need to cold call. And as I thought about how to drive revenue, I said, well, I've got 50 columns. You know, there's plenty of content here. And I started thinking about, well, maybe it's time to go write that book. And um, that's the genesis of your ownership journey. We've often called it the blog to book strategy, where you have this content and you need to get it organized. I have to say, Bruce, the conversation we had when we first talked, you were perhaps the most informed person who hadn't written a book about writing a book that I'd ever talked to. Um, you had done your research. As I got to know you better, I found out why. That's uh, <laughs> We were talking, uh, we were joking about ski trips or something. Um, when you go skiing, I'm sure you research things very thoroughly. That's just, that's the man you are. Um, so uh, same thing about uh, writing. Uh, clients pay me not to make mistakes. Mm. Um, need to be thorough. Yeah. Because uh, as somebody said, who knew math was involved? You, you do a lot of math for them. Now, what about speaking? Because I know you don't want to be this professional speaker and on, you know, doing 80 dates a year or something like that. You're more strategic with the speaking. Could you talk about your philosophy as, as to sure. speaking? So I certainly have done a fair amount of public speaking across a variety of venues. Um, uh, small and smallish, certainly not, you know, keynote for 2000 people. You know, my, my strategy for driving businesses, people have to see the product before they buy. Um, I connect really well with groups of a few up to a few dozen. I have to be able to look everyone in the room in the eyes to connect with them. And I found that works really well, with, well for me. And I like my, my events to be more conversational because that's what engages the audience. Um, so I do get speaking opportunities and I evaluate them with, well, how does it fit my criteria for what works well for me? The speaking fee itself is nice, but that's not the reason to do it. I'm still giving up a day or two or whatever that I could be building elsewhere. So I think about who's in the audience, who's likely to wanna talk to me afterwards, what kind of businesses are they, are they likely to engage me or not? So if it's a room of CEOs of $100 million businesses, that's my prime target. If it's a chamber of commerce with mainly Main Street retail businesses, 
that's a great place, but not for me, because mm-hmm. those folks aren't going to hire me. So if there's a fit, I'm all over it. If not, I'm happy to refer them to colleagues who can service that need. Great. Well, Bruce, is there anything I haven't covered that you wanted to be sure we talked about today? Um, you've been pretty thorough, and I appreciate that very much. To, you know, We're scheduling the book release for real soon now. Um, we have one more proof to run, but hopefully the next few weeks it will be live, and uh, we can talk about it more later. Sounds great. Well, this is a podcast, and I know you're getting on other podcasts, and you'll spread the word, and we'll share the word with the Indie Books family. Uh, That's what we call the 150 authors and professional speakers that we are affiliated with, and we believe in cross-pollination. We believe in amplifying each other's work. So we look forward to amplifying your work. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us today. Everyone, thank you for being on this episode of Marketing with a Book. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.